me pray once more. Lord Jesus, such a simple statement, but a world of thinking that your church has done over the centuries about this simple statement. So I pray that you would grant us today to stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before us and to think along with you and to think along with them. We are not the first people in history, the first Christians in history to confront um, tyranny from government officials. We are not the first people to have questions about what is tyranny. We are by no means the first people to question what are the What's the overlap between government and family and church and their authority, their respective authority? So we need clarity today. So I pray that you would make my words clear. I pray that you would cause your intent, Lord Jesus, to to land on us. You would grant us to apply your word wisely wisely according to your ways that you among us may produce a rich harvest of new life of new life you have specific purposes for caesar let us see them today let us see also your specific purposes for how we would relate to you in your name we pray amen well as i just prayed throughout the centuries christians have oftentimes resisted tyranny in a near miraculous way. That is, they have resisted tyranny without becoming tyrants themselves. How do we do that? How has the church done that throughout history? Well, we have done it by following Jesus' simple, masterful teaching before us this morning. This passage begins with a great irony. The very thing that Jesus said that the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, would do last week to throw him out of the vineyard and kill him is the very thing that they begin to plan to do in verse 19, um, to off him. But they don't want to do it themselves. After all, the people are hanging on his every word. So verse 20, they want the governor, Pontius Pilate, to do it. In short, they're cowards. They're cowards. So they send out spies, the way our government sends out FBI agents among protesters at the Capitol. And same principle, And these spies want to force him into a corner and catch him in a trap from which he can't escape. It is remarkable here to see the humility of Christ. Once he is resurrected, all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to him, Matthew 28, 18, and yet here he submits himself under the authority and jurisdiction of Pilate. Remarkable. Remarkable. But in order to trap him, they, they the, the spies, they need to first smooth things out a little bit with the butter of flattery, verse 21. And we should note here, everything they say is true about Jesus in verse 21. That's the most effective and um, useful kind of flattery when you can cloak the truth, or excuse me, cloak your entrapment with the truth. But then comes the trap, verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Jesus' answer is quite simple at first glance to understand, but then we will realize that, again, there is a whole world of thinking to do here. We need to think clearly about this, and it is not easy. It's not easy, and we discovered this, how little thinking we have done on this very simple passage when we assumed 
pre-COVID, that, that we didn't have to do this anymore, that everything's going to be fine. And then COVID exposed just how much, how little we had done any thinking on what Jesus is saying here today. We had to scramble to catch up. Say, whoa, 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 whoa. what was that verse about again? We spent two years doing that. So we, we need to look clearly and closely at Jesus' famous reply here today and consider its principles and then begin to work out some of the applications for us today. So first, we need to understand the kind of trap that's been laid for Jesus. Because on the one hand, if Jesus says yes, an unqualified yes, that it is lawful to pay tribute to Caesar, then he'll lose um, any affection that the people would have for him. They'll see him as a, as a collaborator with the hated Romans who occupied Palestine. And that's because the Romans collected a lot of taxes, a lot of taxes. Tiberius, the Caesar, his father had restrained tax collecting, the practice, but it was very possible still at this time that the Jews were paying their tithe to maintain the temple, and they were paying one-third of their grain to Rome and one-half of their fruit harvests to Rome. And on top of this, an income tax was imposed on artisans and tradesmen, as well as a poll tax. A poll tax is not in order to vote. A poll tax is just a tax on every head, the same amount for every person, which, of course, falls most harshly upon the poorest of the poor. And there were port duties. There were sales taxes. There was an auction tax. There was an estate duty. Can you relate? (laughs) So if Jesus says yes, it would be a total letdown of the people who were hanging on his every word. But if Jesus says an unqualified, no, it is not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then of course they can accuse him to Pontius Pilate of sedition, and the whole, the whole game is up. But as crafty as they are, Jesus knows their craftiness. Verse 23. Jesus is not naive. To be naive is to be unlike Jesus. There is a moral element to naivete. We are usually naive because in our pride, we, we, we know that there are realities that, that we just know to be true, and we don't want to think about it anymore. We, we can't imagine the world being that way, so we decide in our pride, as if we are God, that of course the world is this way and not this way. Naivete is often based on pride, on acting as if we are God. But if you want to be like Jesus, then you and I both, we must be both innocent as doves and wise as serpents. Matthew 10, 16. And so Jesus answers innocently and wisely, one for the ages. Verse 24, show me a denarius. The denarius was the average day's wages for a laborer in Palestine, and it was also the amount of that poll tax, the, the Roman poll tax. And interestingly, Jesus doesn't have one and a denarius. They do. (laughs) And Jesus asks, whose likeness and inscription does it have? This is the key to Jesus' teaching here, and we will return to it. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? Caesar's, they say. On one side of the denarius, it would have had an image, an inscription, an engraving, the likeness of Tiberius Caesar. And it would have read, Tiberius Caesar son of the divine Augustus, comma, Augustus. In other words, it proclaimed that Tiberius is the semi-divine son of God. That's what the currency said. And on the other side was an image of Tiberius's mother, Livia, with the title Pontifex 
Maximus. You Catholics, ex-Catholics may, may understand that that means high priest. High priest. Huh. The highest political authorities presuming to be God and presuming to regulate religion. Imagine that. Have Americans ever seen that before? By the way, that was the main reason for the American War of Independence. It wasn't the Boston Tea Party. It wasn't taxes. It was that King George, King George was about to impose one Anglican bishop over all the colonies. And so it's no coincidence that all of Washington's high command were all sitting generals, or excuse me, sitting elders in the Presbyterian church. Most of the War of Independence was fought by elders from churches. <laughs> but I'm getting ahead of myself. Why? Why is that? Jesus replies, verse 25, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. The word render here means to hand over, to give back, to pay back, something that is already owned by another, render back to this person. And the way to figure out who is the owner is discerning whatever image is stamped on the thing in question. The image stamped on the thing tells you who its owner is. The things engraved with the image of Caesar, that tells you it is owned by Caesar, not you. So go ahead, swiftly and easily, render it back to Caesar. The things stamped with the image of God. That image tells you that they are not really yours, that they are his. So go ahead, swiftly and easily, render them back to God. The image that the thing bears tells you its rightful owner. So in this reply, Jesus simultaneously affirms paying everything lawfully due to Caesar, while also affirming also that Caesar... This is so simple as to skip right over it, but it is, it is so profound and it is so key to understand the passage. Jesus also affirms Caesar and God are two different things. <laughs> Caesar is not God. <laughs> so simple and yet profound. Caesar is not God. Um, Caesar is not God and God is not Caesar. And if you are God, then you are God. God is God. God is God above all. All things answer to you. All things answer to you. So what is God's? Whatever bears his image. Whatever bears his image. What bears his image? Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. After our likeness. Jesus is using words here specifically from Genesis and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is profound. The role that Caesar plays in the world, it comes from somewhere. It comes from somewhere. It too has a creator. It too bears the stamp of God upon it. And people, 
Every person on the face of the earth bears the stamp of God. Caesar does not own people. God does. And every person on the face of the earth owes their ultimate allegiance, not to Caesar, but to God. But to God. And the role that Caesar plays in the world is only a part, only a subset of this this mandate from God the Creator to humanity. For those who bear his likeness, to have dominion in the world. For mankind to exercise dominion, that by necessity requires some form of governance. And so Caesar has a role to play in that from God. God gives governors, God gives Caesars in order to bring about the dominion mandate, which a part of that is governance of people. And even, this is before the fall, even without sin, even without sin, in God's, in God's good plan, there is hierarchy, there is governance. How does that work? Oh, boy. <laughs> Noodle on that for a while. Um, but, but then, because, because Caesar is just one subset of, of, this, of this dominion mandate in, in the world, within the realm of governance, there's actually three realms of governance. The first is that of family which will come just a few verses later in Genesis. And the second is is that of God's people, the church. So God brings governance to the family. God brings governance through the church. And then only later, only later in Genesis do we read of the third form of governance, that of the civil magistrate or Caesar. Now, is, is it always easy to determine the lines between these three spheres of governance? No, 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 no. There's, there's, it's hard work thinking about this, but, but we, know, we know there's a hierarchy and we know that there's three spheres through Jesus' simple words here of family, church, and the civil magistrate, Caesar. And so the agents, verse 26, are left simply speechless, unable to catch Jesus in their trap. In fact, they're not even mad. They, they marvel. They marvel at how deftly they've been disarmed by the wisdom of God here, which is a practical demonstration of the theological truth that Jesus has just taught, that God is God and you, whoever you are, are not. And that Caesar is but just one form of the governance that God has instituted on earth for his dominion mandate in the world. Okay, so again, thinking through these principles here is, is not easy. It, it, is, it is not simple because we are finite. We're the created ones, and our view of things is always complicated by sin upon sin. This, this is why I, I believe it was so laughable, really, about what happened in the pandemic, because on the one hand, you had people who were, were taking stands against the lockdowns, Churches who were doing this, they were taking stands against the mandates in, in one form or, or another. And then there were other people who were critical of, of these people. And, and sure, th- th- there were plenty of churches who were taking um, stands that I, that I think were superficial and simplistic and reactionary. But, but these people who criticized these people demonstrated in their criticism that they were just as simplistic and reactionary and superficial. Um, but there were plenty of churches out there who worked hard and thought deeply and wrestled long and hard with the principles that we're discussing here. Our own elders needed to wrestle and grind a bit to come to some conclusion. It is not easy. It is not easy. But again, think through it. We must, especially today, because we are a church 
in the United States, in California, and in no less in Sacramento. We need to think about this. So again, the, the governing principle here of Jesus' words is this. The image stamped on the thing tells you who it belongs to. And God and Caesar are not the same people. They are two different people. God and Caesar are different. God is God and Caesar and you are not God. So we need to begin by defining some terms more clearly. Who is Caesar for us? Who is Caesar for us? We, we live in California, so the, that means that the governor or the, the president is Caesar, right? Well, not exactly, because we live in a representative constitutional republic. So our Caesar is not actually a person. It's a paper. It's the Constitution. And that paper delineates the powers that the people serving in office have and do not have, both at the state and the federal level. So I realize this is a bit of, of a civics lesson here, but, but so many in the people in the pandemic seem to have forgotten these little details. And they're really important because they're the reality of this thing. So, and, and we have so often forgotten what exactly is Caesar's job description. And where does that job description come from? It comes from God. It comes from God. The role of Caesar, God stipulates in his word. He, he delineates these, these, these uh, responsibilities in, in several places, but one of the most concise is in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. One of the things to remember about the prayers that you read in the Bible is that the prayers of the Bible tell you the priorities of God. The prayers of the Bible tell you the priorities of God. What are the priorities of God for Caesar? 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. That's why today George prayed for Don Natoli, our county supervisor. We do that because we're commanded to do it. For what reason? What, what are we praying for? What, were, what was George praying for when he prayed for our county supervisor by name, Don Natoli? that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That is God's purpose. That is God's calling for Caesar, for government, to ensure, and, and if this is ensured for Christians, it will be ensured for everyone else. The whole society will be blessed if Christians have this, that we, Christians, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, such that, such that um, the gospel may go forth. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If the circumstances are met in a society and achieved this way, that the people of God may do this, the whole society is blessed. Caesar exists to allow people, Christian or not, to lead a peaceful and quiet life. Um, and so God means for everything that occurs in Washington and Sacramento and the, the county board of supervisors and the city council to, to produce this end in our society. That's what God wants. And yes, to this end, thinking about COVID here, a person may claim power under an emergency and they may claim that it is, it, is, it is for this emergency, but that power, even then, is not defined by that person. It is defined by the Constitution. The Constitution is our Caesar. And even Caesar comes from God. Thus, Paul will say in Romans 13, Romans 13, verses 1 and 2, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. 
Well, who is our governing authority? Our governing authority in the end is the Constitution. For there is no authority except from God. Oh, it comes from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. God made it that way. God designed it that way. Um, but the, the highest constitution, or excuse me, the highest governing authority in our land is the Constitution. Thus, when a person who has sworn loyalty to our governing authority acts in contravention of that governing authority, they are the ones breaking Romans 13. And we are the ones who are obeying Romans 13 if we disregard or resist their orders which go against the highest governing authority, the Constitution. Okay, so when is that? How do we get clear on that? Oh, that, okay. There's the rub. Totally hard. Totally hard thinking. Totally full of risk. Because the governor does not bear the sword in vain. There's risk involved. This is hard. But guess what? It's a fallen world. What did you expect? <laughs> America is not Eden. We, we have not got to heaven yet. This stuff is hard. It's not easy. And the answer to these questions and more was never meant to be arrived at individually, but in community, as families and as a church. We, we grind together. We debate. We talk about it. We talk about it. And, we, and we, we talk about it with our Bibles open. And we come to answers together. But, but back to first principles, back to first principles. In that same passage, Paul makes clear that there are three things that bear Caesar's image that we must therefore render to Caesar. Romans 13, verses 3 through 7. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. You don't want a ticket? Drive the speed limit. You know, that's what, that's what Paul's saying. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The, the power of force that the government has to enforce its laws. For he is the servant of God, even if he does not acknowledge God. God is wearing him as his mask to do good into the world. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. I think you can see here that Paul is just riffing off of Jesus. So the first thing we must render to Caesar is obedience, verses three through five. Our culture likes to use the alternative word compliance. <laughs> you hear that word everywhere? compliant with. It's just another word for obedience. Obedience. And obey we must, as long as it does not conflict with God's royal law. Again, because Caesar is the servant of God. He is not God, but he serves God. Again, often unwittingly, and he has the threat of force to back it up. God gave it to him to keep order, so we must obey Caesar. Again, with the caveat, as long as it does not conflict with our obedience to God. Okay, that's number one. Number two, despite our state and our country's excessive and burdensome taxation in the form of taxes and fees and penalties, when Caesar imposes taxes, we are to pay them. We are to pay them. When you get that bill in the mail and it has the seal of the state of California on it, you know that the money in your bank account that equals the amount on that bill is, is no longer yours. It is sitting in your bank account, but it is not yours. 
Caesar owns it. Caesar owns it. It's his. And it's his by a right that God gave him. So what we must do is pay it. We must render back to what he is owed, and we must do it now. We must do it now. Um, no more, but also no less. Also no less. But thirdly, what, what belongs to Caesar, verse 7, also includes honor. So while we may disagree with an official, we must still refer to that immoral, corrupt, money-grubbing, sell-your-granny-for-a-buck judge as your honor, <laughs> your honor, you're a crook, your honor, <laughs> always your honor. We give the honor that is due, always, every time. Not because they have earned that respect, because, but because of who put them there, our God, our God. He is wearing that judge, in this case, as his mask. And then, outside of these three things, we are then to render to God that which is God's. That which is God's. It is logically silly, then, to say no more, no more, no less, no more, because what is God owed? He is God, and even what we give to Caesar, we do it by looking over Caesar's shoulder and seeing God's face over Caesar's shoulder, and we can, we can give it over to Caesar with a wry grin on our face, knowing that we are doing it to God. We do it all for God. But, so it's logically silly to say, we say no more, no less, no more than what we should give to God. What does God demand if we all bear his image? God is owed even our very life, our bodies, our souls, everything. But we must think hard and long about, but no less, no less, about rendering to God what is already his that may still be sitting in the bank account of our lives. Whatever bears his image already belongs to him, you, me. And the great irony of our passage in Luke is that in just a short while, Jesus will serve in the place that Livia claimed for herself as our great high priest, our pontifex maximus, and he will be crucified for our sins to make a way for us to return to God, to be returned to God. Jesus is our way, and he will be raised from the dead, proving him to be the fully divine King of kings and Lord of lords, the one that we should give ourselves, render ourselves back to in every aspect of our life. Everyone. Render to Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render to Christ everything that is Christ's. Okay. So, what, what's, what's the real issue here? What is the real issue? Well, I think the real issue here is not first getting square on what is Caesar's, but getting square in our minds on what is Christ's. What is Christ? What belongs to him? Let's get square on that first. Then it's very clear what belongs to Caesar. And then the next important question is whether we possess the character within ourselves necessary to actually render to Christ that which is his. Are we willing to do that? Because for many Christians, for many Christians, it, it is easier to begrudgingly render to Caesar that tax return than it is to render to King Jesus that which is his. What belongs to him? So, so what is Christ? As we, as we have said, humanity, male and female, we are gods. We are designed to be God's idols on the earth. 
We're designed to be like, like living statues to the universe, displaying, bearing the image of God, male and female. And on Mother's Day, it is, it is a wonder, wondrous truth to remind ourselves that, that women are half of the image of God in the universe. But we are fallen. So Jesus, in his resurrection, became the firstborn of a new recreation from the old fallen creation. Thus Hebrews 1.3 says about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. Same language that Jesus is using here about the coin. The exact imprint of his nature, of God's image, of, of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. By the word of his power. Only Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. So how do, how do we fulfill our mandate? How do we fulfill this dominion mandate that we were designed for from the very beginning to be God's idols if we are fallen? The only way is by faith in Christ, to be united to him by faith. And then as we are united to him by faith, and as we fix our eyes on him, we are transformed, 2 Corinthians 3.18, from one imprint, one clear imprint to an next, from one degree of glory to another, Paul says there, and we become more and more like Christ, and we more and more fulfill the mandate that God had for us from the very beginning. And by this method, we, we fulfill that mandate, and we render ourselves back to God. Render ourselves back to God. Pa- Paul puts it this way, at, at the end of talking about the gospel, the very first thing that he says in, in Romans 12 um, um, is this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Romans 12, verse 1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Paul is talking about the exact same thing here. Render to God that which is God's. What is God's? You. You. You and others. So Paul will go on to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, implied here, to render back to him. So the the only way that we fulfill our our, our mission, our purpose in life, is by growing into the, the image, the imprint of Christ, not the imprint of Caesar. Not the imprint of Caesar. Okay? Which begs the question, why then, why then do we invite the imprint of Caesar upon us? We must give Caesar obedience. We must give our Caesar what he is owed in the, in the form of taxes. And we must give Caesar that which he is owed in the form of honor. All of those things are dead obvious. Do it yesterday. But why do we give him more? Why do we give Caesar what only belongs to God? So we, we, have, we, we do not have enough time today. I, I am considering doing a second sermon on this subject next week to talk about other further applications and questions that may be go, even going, be going through your mind right now. Um, we'll pray about that. But I, I want to talk about one particular application of this. So just... So just one now to, to think this through, and that is not necessarily ourselves, but our children. Our children. 
Why do we raise up our children only to hand them to Caesar in our public schools eight hours a day for 12 to 20 years? Why, when fathers have been commanded to raise up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6, 4, do we delegate that responsibility to Caesar? To Caesar, whose only impulse is to raise them up into the image of Caesar. And why are we shocked by that? And why are we offended when we see Caesar doing that? That makes perfect sense to me that Caesar would want to do that. Why are we shocked by that? Why, when it comes to our children, do we give to Caesar that which is Christ's, that which bears his image, that which belongs to King Jesus? Okay, so now I've offended like all kinds of people, okay? So I need to make a few caveats here. I need to make a few caveats because I should, not necessarily because I'm afraid of your offense of me. But I, as a parent, I, I want to start with me. I, as a parent, have done this. I, I was raised in public schools, and um, I grew up with a great disdain for Christian education, to be honest. And I, with, with our own children, we've, we've done a mixture of, of education in the past, and we have made mistakes myself. So... When I, when I say these things, I, I want to say I place myself under my own microscope here. I go first. I go first. And I realize that there are many people here today who have made the same decision with your kids. And I also realize that I speak to some who volunteer in public school, PTAs. And I know that I speak to some public school teachers here or retired public school teachers. And I realize that some parents may need to use um, the, the special needs services of the public school system. All that is true. All that is true. So I, I want to speak especially to the public school teachers for a second and for those that volunteer in public schools. And I want to say to you, we're so thankful you're there. I'm so thankful you're there. Praise God that you're there. You, you have a noble vocation. Praise God. Keep going. Glad you're there. The hang-up is if you make a difference there, the way we Christians define make a difference, you'll be up in front of the disciplinary board in no time. I mean, so you, you, you are hamstrung there not by choice and not by your choice. So I'm not, I'm not denigrating you. You have a noble vocation the way many people in public service have a noble vocation and who are also hamstrung in some way. And, and it's because you have the courage to operate in that situation that I say, I'm thankful that you are there. Thank you for your faith. Thank for your, thankful for your service. That's, that's not in doubt at all. Keep going. Keep going. But in, in this state, in this state, Caesar is so much, is so much equated with the school system and, and parents are seen as a virus, this um, first governance organism in the world, the family, parents are seen as a virus to the organism. Um, to give an example, the California State School Board actually has a policy advising all teachers to work against, quote, bullies who commit what they call, quote, spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. And they define, quote, spiritual abuse as using spiritual beliefs to justify abuse, circular logic, but using spiritual beliefs to justify abuse, and then they define abuse as 
forcing others to adhere to rigid, uh, basically, beliefs. Rigid beliefs. Well, who are these bullies? Who are these bullies in the school system that, that our schools are always wanting to protect the children from? They are, as one writer puts it, they are the barbarians outside the schoolyard gates that teachers are working so hard to fend off. Children's welfare, as defined by activists, is not these barbarians' priority. These bullies who know next to nothing about this theory or that theory are officious intermeddlers in school policy and teacher instruction. They aren't even embarrassed by their own ignorance. They really shouldn't be considered at all except that America's backward laws insist on allowing the intrusion. Well, who are these bullies? These bullies, the writer says, they go by the names mom and dad. But again, naivete is not Christ-like. Caesars have always been, throughout history, they've always wanted the children. That's because Caesars are often bullies themselves and enjoy their greatest success with the most vulnerable. But it also serves their purposes to indoctrinate children because it keeps them in power. And, and it's because the devil can't reproduce. <laughs> the devil can't reproduce. To turn against the law of God always ends in infertility. You, you literally see this all around the world. Every nation that turns away from God literally drops infertility. Every time. So are we. You see it everywhere. And because Caesar's lust is voracious, always has been, he wants our kids. But he always has been. Why are we naive about that? Why, why do we think something is, why do we expect anything different? So, he wants our kids. He wants kids. So why do we give them to him? So I should also note here that many, many Christian schools and charter schools are little better. Their educational philosophy, I'm, I'm discovering as I go along, is basically, hey, at least we're not doing meth and indoctrinating kids. You know, but, but we are never to make a cardboard cutout version of Jesus and use him as a front for just following Caesar all the same. As Jesus taught us earlier in Luke 11, verses 24 to 26, if all we do is clear out the demons but nothing else, they will come back sevenfold. They will come back even stronger. It's not enough just to clear Caesar out. We need to know what King Jesus wants, what must be rendered to Christ. That's the question. That's the question, and there's been a massive vacuum. There's been, there's been a vacuum. Again, I put, place myself under this microscope. There's been a vacuum in my life, but there's been a vacuum in the church's life for a long time. What must be rendered to Christ? What belongs to Christ? It is us. It is our children. We are to render to him what is his, and our children bear his image, created in his likeness, and are born in order to be his idols, reflecting his excellencies to a watching world. So how does that happen if they are raised up in the nurture and admonition of Caesar? So how do our children possess the imprint of the image of Christ when we give them to Caesar to imprint his image on them? Okay, I, I also realize that this is Mother's Day. <laughs> And it may sound like that I am lambasting mothers here, and I would just want to say I intend here to be mostly talking to fathers, to fathers, because Ephesians 6.4 gives this command to fathers, to fathers. So we need a plan, men. God calls us to it. 
God calls us to it. So you're going to hear more from me about this in the future on another time. But this call squarely lands on our shoulders. And we must realize that Caesar has only presumed ownership of our children because we let him. We men. We let him. We let it happen. We've only been, it's only happened because we let uh, what is, is Christ's be imprinted into the mold of Caesar. But, but, that's the bad news, but take heart. Take heart because if, if you are Christ's mothers or fathers or spiritual mothers or fathers in this church, take heart because if you have Christ, you already have all that you need. All that you need. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4. On the one hand, in verse 4, the God of this world is in the business of blinding people, blinding people from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Christ who is the image, the likeness of God. That's true. The the God of this world is, is blinding people to that light. But if you are in Christ, you already have what Caesar does not you already have what Caesar can never have. Caesar, Caesar is only Caesar. <laughs> Caesar only has the power of the sword. But you have something much, much greater. Paul writes, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in your heart that you might shine that same light. The, the, the very same power that created light at the beginning of creation was the very same power that recreated you, that redeemed you, that converted you, that, that united you to Christ, that opened your eyes and took away the blindness and allowed you to see the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. The very same power that when God said, let there be light, did that in you. And God did that in you, not just for you, but for others. Maybe the children of this church, which are not your birth children, but they are your children. You have this power. You, Paul here is talking about him and his other fellows as they relate to the Corinthians. And in the same way, parent, you already have the power that Caesar can never have, the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have it. You have the power. You have so much more than Caesar. You have so much more than Caesar. One of the things we need to realize about Caesar is Caesar is just Caesar. (laughs) What power of the sword, what power of of compliance can stand but the the power that when, when there was nothing can say, let there be light, and there was light. No power can stand against that. What power can stand before a power that could raise itself from the dead? No power. No power. Caesar is only Caesar. Caesar only has a bully pulpit and the sword. We have the power of God, the power of creation and recreation, the power of death and new life, the power of forgiveness and resurrection, the power of bread and wine. These are our weapons. These are our weapons, and you have that power. You have that power if you are in Christ. Take it. Use it. Enjoy it. Bask in it. Brag about it. Use it plainly and unapologetically. Use it everywhere you can. Use it in the nursery. Use it at the dinner table, in the car, wherever you go, with whomever you are with. Use this power For it is the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. 
the Jew first and also all of us, even people from Illinois. <laughs> Against such power, the gates of hell, let alone the California school board, will not stand. Will not stand. Not even close. Not even close. But do we believe that? And are we willing, are we willing to walk by faith in that power in order to render to Christ what is already his, what already bears his image? Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to take a step, a step? I, I am so thankful in my life, first off, for the mercies of God. For, the, for all of my mistakes, they've all been washed clean at the foot of the cross. And so if, if you are sitting here today and think, feeling any condemnation, I want you to know there is therefore now no condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ Jesus. All mistakes, all, all missteps, they are all covered in the blood of Christ. But you still, you still possess this power. You still possess it, use it, wield it in faith. In faith that this power still, even to this day, is raising, raising the dead. Raising the dead to new life, even within our own homes. Well, we need to stop here. I, you'll probably hear more from me about this in other areas in the future, but let me stop here and pray, and if you would like to carry on the conversation with me, I'm available. I'm available. I'd love to do more listening than I've done here. I can't listen when I'm preaching. <laughs> but if you'd like to talk about it, I'd, be, I'd love to listen to your questions and your thoughts about this. Let's keep the conversation going. Let me pray. Father, I, I want to simply pray that you would grant us to render to your Son the risen King Jesus, what belongs to him. I, I want to say that I need faith. I, I feel the, the wobbliness of my faith in this endeavor so often. So I want to pray for myself first and say, I believe, but help my unbelief. And then I want to pray for that for each one of us here, that you would grant us um, the faith that we need to take that next step. I'm, I'm thankful that you do not demand of us to take all 17 steps today. You are a patient God. You are content with us taking the one step, and then you'll show us the next step. So I pray you are a, a just-in-time God. You give us the faith we need for today, so will you grant that, and will you grant us the repentance that we need? to turn from giving to Caesar that which is not his? And will you grant us obedience by faith to render to you those things that have always been yours in the first place? Grant us faithfulness. Grant us to be um, clear reflections as your idols of your excellencies to our children, to each other in this church, and to the world. Please do all of this, Father, because you are a glorious God and because your grace to us deserves to be glorified, deserves a bright light to be shined on it because it is so good, so great, so life-giving. So will you please do this, we pray, for the glory of your name. Amen. Amen. There is power in his name.
name. Power that he's been given when he was raised from the dead. All authority in heaven and on earth. Every square inch of the earth, he reigns over it. Wherever you will go today, this week, whatever room you will walk in, you will walk onto a square foot of this earth that Jesus reigns over. And all power has been given to him. So go confident. Go confident and optimistic in that power continuing to work. Amen.